have some things for you, like we want to give you some stuff. And so, you know, we had just gotten through the, the wedding and all the gifts from the wedding. And so we're thinking, hey, we're going to get some more stuff. Our apartment's pretty full, but knock on the door, my dad and stepmom show up and they have some boxes, but they're not wrapped like I thought they were going to be wrapped. They were these big U-Haul boxes that were in both of their hands and they came in and set the boxes down and they said, we've got more. We've got more in the car, like four more big U-Haul boxes and um, so we bring those boxes into the house and we begin to open them up and my dad said something snarky like, Merry Christmas, here's the rest of your stuff that you forgot at the house. We're doing some cleaning and we wanted you to have it. And so I begin to open up these boxes, and um, there's a letter jacket in there. There's, you know, scrapbooks from when I was little that I'd forgotten. And then there were newspaper clippings, and then there were a lot of trophies, okay, a lot of trophies. Kids, you know today when you go play in a league, like, you don't get the championship trophy. You get the participation trophy. Here's what that means. If there's like 500 kids playing in your league, you're all getting these little trophies, but back in the day, we didn't have participation trophies. You only had like first, second, and maybe third place. I got a lot of third places, but they're bigger because they could spend more money on these things. And for me, uh, my room, and I'm just letting you into my vain backstory so you will know how much I need Jesus or needed Jesus. And so as a kid, all those accomplishments, all those trophies, all my confidence and achievements and performance were wrapped up in that. And so when my friends came over, hey, come check out my room. And people came over, it was like this shrine that I had in my room. And it was so much of a shrine that I even forgot that I had left all of those things in that room because in my mind it was just a part of my room at home. And here's the deal. One of the most sobering, that was one of the most sobering object lessons of my life to that point. Because my dad brought in U-Haul boxes, like six U-Haul boxes, all the things that I held so dear as a kid. All the achievements and accomplishments that I held so dear were in six boxes that were full of dust. Half of them broken and tarnished. And full of dust and cobwebs. That's a sobering moment for an adult to go, man, I wrapped everything up in these achievements. And I put all my confidence in those things. Do I have any achievers in the room? I know I'm not the only one. The people in the room that put their confidence in the things that they can achieve and the way that they can perform, and maybe it's not trophies anymore, but maybe it's your job, and maybe it's the, the, th the, the employee of the month or the employee of the year or the accomplishments that you have in your life, whether it's work or family, X, Y, and Z. I assume that I'm not alone. So what do you treasure, C3? Where do you find your confidence? Do you find your confidence in the way that you perform? And you can fill in the blank of, of what those things are in your own life. But here's a bigger question. How does that performance-driven mentality translate to your faith? How does it translate to your faith? Do you have a I ought to kind of faith because you're trying to perform for Jesus? Or do you have a I want to type of faith that rests in who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Do you have a checklist? Is your faith just an, 
a long checklist to say, I've got to do this and this and this. And oh, by the way, because I have my checklist, you've got to do in my mind this, this and this too. Or you don't measure up. You know, Paul had to struggle himself. Before Paul was Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And he had a long list that he had checked off. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was one of the best at performing religiously. In his self-made religion. Turn with me to Philippians 3 verses. We'll be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. And it's one of my favorite texts. Can you have favorites? I guess you can have favorites. I think it's one of my favorite texts. Because it. It ministers to me so much still because it reminds me that self-made religion religion does not fulfill and there's no value in it. The trophies of self-made religion don't pay off. And Paul, of all people, knew the blindness of a self-made faith. He knew the pride that accompanied a self-made faith and he knew the burden of it, too. And he knew that at the end of the day, the loss of it. So Philippians 1, 3, 1 through 11. This text will confront our misplaced religious self-confidence. But it will do something more. It won't just warn us about us. It will point us to the beautiful vision of Christ. And the gain of Christ. And all that accompanies the gain of knowing Christ. Christ and being found in him. So where does our confidence come from? You're going to see two areas in this text where it doesn't come from and one place that it does. Let me read it. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Mic drop. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Look at this resume. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, there's a big but right there. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. See, the first thing that you should never put your confidence in is this. Put no confidence, verse 1 through 3, in those who add to the gospel. Put no confidence in those, C3, who add to the gospel. 
I want to kind of walk back through the first three verses here with you, okay? Paul says finally, and like a good pastor, he's coming to the end of his sermon, but he's really not. He's got like 40-something verses and a couple of chapters later. But I think what he's doing actually is coming to the end of this section. So he says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. We've heard this before. He's repeating himself over and over about the joy that comes from knowing Christ. And here he puts it together and he says, rejoice. So have joy. Where does joy come from? The Lord. So rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, to write these same things to you is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. So you can't apply what you don't remember. This is a really sobering stat for me as a communicator, but you're going to leave today and you're going to remember about 25% of what I say if, if I say it twice. So if you ever wonder why pastors repeat themselves, that's part of it. Or maybe we just lose our train of thought and we're trying to fill space. I'm not sure. Sometimes that's the way it goes. But he's saying, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. He's not only pointing as a conclusion from his first section of this book, but he's pointing forward as well, and here's why. Because he's about to talk about some religious people. And you can't lose your joy any quicker than being religious. And when I say religious, I don't mean true religion as the gospel outlines it. I mean self-made religion that says, I can work my way to God if I do this, this, and this. I don't know any people who are religious that have joy. They're not much fun. So nothing steals joy quicker like a self-made religion, the law. But look at verse 2. Verse 2, he's talking about someone, and this is the first time we've been introduced to these people. But he's telling the Philippian church, look out for these dogs. He, he describes them, this is kind of rough, dogs evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Who's he talking about? One of the biggest problems in the first century was these people called the Judaizers. Ever heard that term? Got a Bible dictionary, you can go look them up. The Judaizers were people, they were Jews who said, you know what? We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, believe that, trust that Gentiles, but here's the deal you got to keep the law, and especially you got to go get circumcised. I'm not sure if I'm a Gentile and I'm a grown man that I'm going to go, hey, I want to sign up for that faith. But that's what they believed. They added to the gospel. They said, yeah, Jesus is good, but you also need to do this to be saved. You also need to be circumcised. You also need to fulfill the law. You also need to fulfill all the things of the Old Testament. So it's Jesus plus. Paul doesn't have any room for that kind of people. You know why? Because if you add anything to the gospel, you kill the gospel. If you add or subtract anything from the gospel, you kill it. And that's why he's so adamant here. If you go back to chapter 1, he's pretty nice to some people that are getting a few things wrong. He's pretty gracious to them. They're believers who are preaching the right gospel, but they're doing out of a need for the spotlight. Chapter 1, verse 18. He was gracious to them. He's not gracious at all here. They're dogs. They're evil. They're mutilators of the flesh. Let me flush that out a little further to make you maybe a little more uncomfortable. In first century, dogs weren't pets. In first century, dogs were ravenous on the streets. 
killing things, mean, hurtful. That's the way he describes them. In our context, where we live in this world, dogs are our friends. My son, when we got him from Samuel from Ethiopia, and we brought him back here, we introduced him to our dog, Lady. And like, she's a miniature dachshund, and she's scared of like little Yorkies, okay? So she's like the, the most scared dog. She has a bark, but she's this little scared dog. And he was terrified <clears throat> of Lady. And we had to go through this process where he wasn't terrified because where he comes from, Dogs were bad. Dogs were mean. We ran from dogs. We stayed away from dogs. Interestingly enough, in the first century, you know what Jews, these Judaizers are Jews. You know what the perspective of Jews were of Gentiles? You know what they called them? They called them dogs because they were unclean, because they didn't follow the law. So you see what Paul's doing here? He's taking this term and flipping it on their heads. And so if a Judaizer's reading this, he's going, oh, you're calling me a dog. Oh. He's flipping it. That's what they call Gentiles. And he's saying, no, these Jews who are adding to Jesus and adding works to salvation, they're the dogs. And then he says they're evil and mutilators. The idea of mutilators is to cut off. And this is another way Paul's using language to to speak into them. So they really wanted people that were Gentiles, especially to believe in Jesus, but then get circumcised. The idea of circumcision is to cut around, not cut off. But he's saying, hey, what they're wanting you to do is meaningless. He's got strong words for them. So strong that in the book of Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, if you've got a Bible, I think we've got it up here. Um, Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9, he's speaking about these Judaizers and he has some harsh words in, in Galatians chapter 1 as well. And he says, But even if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This is what Paul has to say to people who add to the gospel. As we have said before, so we will say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He says it twice. Strong language from Paul. But look at verse 3. Here's a contrast in verse 3. Verse 3 in chapter 3 of Philippians says this. And these are marks of a true believer. A true believer who knows Jesus. Here's what he says. For we're the circumcision. Because circumcision isn't about something you do anymore. It's about the heart. That we've been changed by Jesus. And circumcision is less to do with some physical act than it does to know that we're changed because of Jesus. Here's what we do. We worship by the Spirit. Listen, you can't have the Spirit of God. You don't get the Spirit of God from the law, is what he's saying. We worship God. These people weren't worshiping God. They were too busy doing and trying to earn credit before God. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Jesus, not ourselves, as the Judaizers would. And we put how much confidence in the flesh? How much confidence? No confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in ourselves, in our ability. We put our confidence in Christ. So we put no confidence in those who add to the gospel. Why so serious, Paul? Right? You're pretty rough here, Paul. The gospel's at stake for the Philippians. They're doing well, but they have to keep trusting in the truth of the gospel that was delivered for them. 
What does that look like for us? Listen, the, the gospel plus or minus anything isn't the gospel at all. You know, what, the, the way that we often look at this, um, and people kind of maybe a default Christianese religion of our day and our place looks kind of like this. You got the mason jar in your house, and you put the quarter in, and you keep putting the quarter in at the end of that. You take a vacation. That's what we used to do. Man, vacations are way more expensive than that today. But that's the way self-made religion works. And, and hear me on this, meaning like, I go to church, clank. I get baptized as an infant, clank. I go to confirmation class, clank. You're putting things in the mason jar at one point thinking, hey, I've filled it up. I've filled it up. I've done this. God will be pleased with me, him, with, with me. Let me offer these coins to God. And that's not at all the way that the gospel works. It's what Christ has done for us. And we're, we'll get to that in just a minute and see what he's done for us. That he fills that mason jar up. But here's the thing. We live in a really inclusive world. And we don't have a need to be weird and strange just to be weird and strange as Christians. But here's the deal. We live in this inclusive world that says, you know, you've got Jesus. But let's just add a little other, some other things to it. Let's just add a little bit of this and that. We live in this world. It's, it's like the supermarket where we go down the supermarket with our cart. And we're like, yeah, I'll throw a little bit of that in and a little bit of this in. And so whenever we say, no, the gospel is not Jesus plus X, Y, and Z, you're going to have problems with people in the world around you. And one of the other challenges is we live in this information world where at the touch of a or click of a button, you have all kinds of information, religious information in front of you, and it makes it all that much more important to know what you're reading and who you're reading, to know what kind of counselor you're going to and who you're leaning on for information and knowledge. And so be careful. There's a warning here for us as well. Well, Paul's warning is to put no confidence in those around you that would add to the gospel. But look at his resume. Here's what he's going to say to these Judaizers effectively. You think you were religious? You think you have a lot of deeds? Let me show you my pedigree. And that's what he does. He's helping the Philippians understand his own testimony and where he was so they might be encouraged. So first, we put no confidence in those who add to the gospel. And second, we put no confidence in our own achievements. Look in verse 4 through 6 with me for a minute. Paul turns and says, I want to show you my religious resume before I came to Jesus. And what I think about it. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Meaning in what I've done. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's when the law of God in the Old Testament says you were supposed to be circumcised as a Jew. On the eighth day was the right time to do it. So guess what? His parents did it right. Look at, look at what else. Of the people of Israel, meaning he's not a proselyte. He didn't come from somewhere else. Even though he's living in Tarshish. And people would go, is he really a Jew? He's of the people of Israel. He's 
purebred of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was considered one of the strong tribes. This is where David comes from. This is one of two of the tribes that didn't go with the northern kingdom and punt on God. People in Israel, the Jews, thought of the Benjamites as the strong tribe of the nation Israel. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Here's what this means. It means he's living in kind of this Greek culture. But think my big fat Greek wedding. Just a little different. Like, here, here's this family... And you know they're Greek, right? You know, every, you know from the way their house looks on the outside to what they eat and how they talk. You know everything about This is what he's saying. He's saying they're living in a place, in a culture that's very much non-Jewish. And yet they're living as Jews. They've kept the Hebrew language, languages, both Hebrew and Aramaic. And so he's saying the stock is good. I'm a Jew. I'm a better Jew than you. And then you see him say... As to the law, I was a Pharisee. So when you think about, when you think about um, different flavors of Christianity, you think about the, the extreme fundamentalists. Who they don't walk on the same sidewalk in college. Like the, the girls walk on that sidewalk and the boys walk on this sidewalk. So he was like that. He was the most fundy sect of the Jewish religion, the Pharisee, he kept all the Old Testament laws, they added the Mishnah to it, which is a bunch of other laws, and so they were law-keeping kind of people. He was a Pharisee. It doesn't say, he doesn't say it here, but he studied under the Pharisee of Pharisees, if you will, in Gamaliel. I mean, he was the guy. If you wanted to be a protege and go un, be under a rabbi, Gamaliel was the guy. This is Paul. He's got quite the religious resume. And as to zeal, so all that's really his background, a lot of family heritage, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Zealous people, like they love something so much they hate anything else, right? And so as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and this is what we see in the book of Acts. He's there when Stephen, the first martyr of the church, is stoned. So he's zealous, he's passionate, he's sincere about what he believes and what, who he is. persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law it doesn't mean he's perfect but he says blameless mic drop on the judaizers i'm better than them so those are paul's achievements and if we're comparing trophies here or coin collections here he's far out past the judaizers he wins I think he was probably a guy that if he had the chance to stand before God and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? He had a laundry list of reasons at that point. If I modernize this text for us, I might do it this way. Think about these things. Or these things in verses 4 through 6. Things we shouldn't put our confidence in. Rituals. Don't you think about baptism or church attendance. Ethnicity. Or the nation that we live in. American equals Christian, right? Tradition. The heritage that we come from. The family that we come from. Hey, kids, my, parent goes to ch my parents go to church. My parents go to community group. My dad is a community group leader. My dad is an elder. My dad is a pastor. Doesn't cut it. Your tradition, your heritage. Put no confidence in those things. Rule keeping. Man, being, I'm a really moral person. The New Testament has some things to say about 
moral people. That they're just as lost as the heathen. There's nothing wrong with being moral. There's nothing wrong with getting baptized. Those can be good things in the right way. But if you're trusting in those things to know God and be made right with God, you've got all kinds of problems. And zeal. Man, there's that guy and he's really passionate and sincere about what he believes. But what he believes is not the gospel. You know, when I think about this passage, I think about a parable. A parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee from Luke chapter 18. I think we've got the text there. I want to flip there because I think this is such a great parallel and it speaks a lot to what we're talking about. This is the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me walk through it with you. He told this parable to some who trusted, listen to this, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And when I say righteous, it's just a churchy way of saying They thought they were right before God, being made right before God by the things that they did. That's the way they thought. And treated others with contempt. Treated others as lesser than because they didn't do what they did. In verse 10, he says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Already described the Pharisee. The Pharisee is the fundamentalist. He's keeping all the law. He's he's doing all the things that are right. A tax collector, likely a Jewish person who is employed by the Roman Empire to take the taxes from the Jews. So nobody, nobody in Jerusalem, nobody in Israel liked the tax collector who was a Jew who was working for Rome to skint, to take all kinds of money from the Jewish people. Nobody liked them. They were the lowest of lows, even though they had a lot. So those are the two people in the parable. The Pharisee, standing over by himself, smugly, I would assume, not close to people. He was too good for them. There was contempt. Prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. You can just hear the pride and the ego and the resting in his own accomplishments and his performance in that. And then he gives his resume. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13. What Jesus says about the tax collector, or Luke says. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, the tax collector knew his need. He knew his life was a mess. And here's what Jesus' assessment is. This is important. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. The idea of justified is to be made legally right before God, to be made righteous. This man went down to the house justified rather than the other. The other is the Pharisee who thought he had all things together. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Why is legalism so appealing? 
and entrapping even to the believer. So here's the deal. This text is really talking about how you think about God as it relates to knowing the God of heaven and being a sinful person and working your way to him. But there's all kinds of places in the New Testament that that also talk about the legalism that comes for us as believers too. That we know the message of the gospel. And I would assume many of you in here would never affirm that works allows you to be made right with God. That all the things you do make you right with God. I don't think many people in this room believe that. And yet functionally we often operate in that way. We often operate in a way that says because I do this and because I perform then that makes me right with God. No, you want to be obedient. You want to pursue holiness. That is right and good. But if you think that it makes you right with God, that's when we have problems. But I think it's so appealing and entrapping because it feeds our ego, right? It feeds our ego to say, I'm doing it right. It feeds our pride to say, they're not. And it's also incredibly deceptive. You're usually the last one to know that you're the legalist. Because you think you're pursuing holiness. And that's why the community of faith is really important. To have somebody, to have a brother or a sister come to you and say, Hey, are you struggling with this? Here's what I see. To to have people in your life that can show you the struggles that you have. So we pursue holiness and obedience as the fruit of righteousness, but not as the root. What fences of legalism have you built up around yourself to puff your chest out to say I'm really doing it right this is a challenging text but look at it here's the deal I told you what not to do (laughs) don't put confidence in people who add to the gospel don't put confidence in your own accomplishments before God what do you do verse 7 through 11 look at it verse 7 through 11 Chapter 3. Here's Paul's perspective after he meets Jesus on Damascus Road. He no longer looks at all those accomplishments and says, I'm putting stock there. I'm putting my confidence there. But here's what he does. Whatever gain I had, all verse 4 through 6, whatever all that gain that I thought I had, I counted as loss. These are accounting terms. Gain and loss column, balance sheet. That's what this is. He has a new assessment of that balance sheet. All the things that I used to put in the gain column, I now put in the loss column. And the one thing that I put in the gain column is Christ. And even though it's one thing, it beats any of those things. This is what he's saying. For the sake of Christ, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. See, because legalism, the only place it got him was pride and ego. And he couldn't measure up. Nobody can measure up to that standard. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Look at it there. And I count those things as rubbish. You know, when you think about the word rubbish, you think of like the British word for garbage, the garbage bin. And that's a nice translation. It's a really proper translation, but it doesn't really fully get what Paul is saying here. And so I'm going to give it to you in in PG language, all right? He's saying this is rubbish. This word for rubbish is not just garbage that you take out and the trash man takes off. It's excrement. It's literally 
dog poop. You heard it here. That's what he's saying. All those things that I trusted in to make me right with God, it's dog poo. It's nothing. It's not only a little bit, it's, it's awful. It's disgusting. Connect that with the Judaizers and dogs. They're putting this together really well. See, God's opinion about us earning our way to his throne. In the Old Testament, remember Adam and Eve, what'd they do? They tried to, ever they sinned against God, they covered themselves. Was that good enough for God? No. He killed an animal and made sacrifice and showed them how disgusting their sin was and what they needed to cover their sin. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 6, the people are trusting in their own good deeds, and he says, Your good deeds are like filthy rags. And I won't even go into the details. See, God hates self-made religion. People, humans saying, I can fix myself. I've got this. Paul sees it as dog poop. This is the way he sees what he once held so dear. The confidence that he put in the flesh. And here's the deal. We talked about this as believers. I don't know about you. I've got a dog my neighbor's got a dog, and inevitably, I try to avoid it, try to pick it up, but inevitably, there's not a month goes by that I'm working in my yard that I don't step in it. This stuff likes to get on your feet, and I'm going to tell you that legalism comes after you. It likes to get on our feet. We've got to clean it off. We've got to trust in the Lord with it and go, none of that makes me right before God. All right, that's as far as I'm taking the poop thing. All right, no more. Jim Gaffigan, won't go there. But look at verse 9. Verse 9 is the theological centerpiece of this text. The reason that all that stuff is loss. And the way in which I have a new gain column, it's because Christ has done something. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness, there's that big word, to be made right with God of my own that comes from the law, because the law can't save, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. Be found in him. See, here's what happens. When you trust in Christ and you believe on him and you go, you know what? There's nothing I can do to earn my salvation and you trust in him. See, his coin collection is full. And he credits his coin collection to yours. You've got nothing. There's nothing in that mason jar. He fills it up. He credits righteousness to you and to me. He dies in our place. Second Corinthians says it this way. 2 Corinthians 5.21, theologically speaking, talking about the atonement or the imputation of Christ, the crediting that Christ has for you. It says, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. And when it says to be sin, it means to be regarded and treated as sin itself, although Jesus had no sin. To be sin so that in him we might become, here it is, 
the word that you're seeing in Philippians 3, the righteousness of God. We can become the righteousness of God because of what Christ has done. He's died in our place. He's our substitute. You ever heard that? That Christ died in our place. He credits us what we never could have. One guy said it this way, salvation isn't about addition or subtraction, but about substitution. So let me ask you, when it comes to your eternal destiny, are you confident in your own accomplishments or achievements, your own gain column, or are you confident in the Savior's accomplishments? That's your third point. Put all confidence in the Savior's accomplishments. But it, it gets better than that. It gets even better than that because God doesn't just want to make you right before Him. He wants you. He wants relationship with you. The Bible says that He adopts you when you come to know Jesus and trust in Him by faith. You become an adopted son and daughter. He wants relationship. He just doesn't want to make you right. He wants relationship with you. Look at it there in verse 10. In verse 10 it says this, here's the reason that I may know him. This is Paul speaking. I don't just want salvation to be made right with God. I want to know him. I want to know his power in his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings, which he was. That I may attain, here's the promise, the resurrection of the dead. I want you to think about that for a minute. Take note of something. Or let me ask you a question, rhetorical question. From the time that Paul became a believer in Christ in Acts chapter 9, on Damascus Road, when Jesus came to him and turned the lights on, how long was it from that point to this point in Philippians chapter 3, when he wrote Philippians? It's over 30 years. 30 years. When people talk about Paul, they talk about the theologian Paul, the guy who knew all this about the Bible, who studied and studied and studied and preached the gospel. This theological giant. But you know 30 years later is what he's saying? What he's still saying? He's still saying, I want to know him. I want to know him. I want you to think with me. My, my kids love the beach. They love going to the beach. I'd much rather be at the lake. I'd much rather be at the river or fishing at the tank. But they love the ocean for some reason. I try to avoid the ocean at all costs. I don't like the sand. I don't like the water. I don't like the salt. I don't like what's in there. I don't like any of it. Especially in Galveston. Unless I'm fishing. My kids love the ocean. And my oldest really loves the ocean. And so I remember taking him to Galveston when he was little. He has a little cap on. I'm sorry, buddy. His little cap on. And you know, little kids, like think about this with your own kids. The first time they go to the beach, what do they do? They, they, they look, they, they survey it, and if you're lucky, they, they dab their toe in it, right? And then they run back. That's what he did. They put their toe in it, and then he ran back. And then he comes back, and he puts both feet in, and he runs back. And then he lets it get up to about his knees, and then he runs back, and then he comes back, and the waves knock him down, and you take the picture when he gets salt in his mouth, right? Maybe that's the second child. The first one, you're just scared. You take the picture, and then he gets out there further, and now you're worried. Like the first trip to the beach, you're, as a parent, you're really worried. Like the current's going to pull him out and all the other things you worry about. 
right? And over the years, his love for the beach has just continued. And so um, then he started getting a snorkel and going under the water. And now, like, he's 14, and I'm going, don't go past the jetty, all right? Like, I can't, right? And you're worried about other things. He's exploring. He's growing. And here's the thing. Think about how vast the ocean is. Even if he became a sailor, even if he explored the depths of the ocean, got his scuba license, did all of that, will he ever fully know the depths and the beauty of the ocean? No way. It's too vast. And yet Jesus is the guy who calmed the winds and the waves, who made the ocean, who sustains the ocean. So let me ask you a couple of questions, C3. This is Paul 30 years after he's come to faith, and he's saying, I want to know him. <clears throat> In other places, he says things like this, Oh, the depth and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways. He never stops growing and wanting to know more about the ocean of God's glory. What does your faith look like? Are you just willing to dip your toe in and that's it? Do you have a, I already know that. I already know that. I've, I've been a Christian for a long time. I already know all that. Do you have an I know that kind of faith? Or do you have a faith that says, I want to know him. I want to continue to know him through his word and in prayer with the saints. I want to experience this idea of knowing Christ is more than intellectual in this passage. It's substantial knowledge of God. And the beauty is, is that God has revealed himself to you through his word and through his son. And you have an avenue of prayer to speak back to him. And so, do you know him? Do you want to continue to know and grow in him? So we put our confidence in the Savior's accomplishments and we grow and we want to know Him and pursue Him. Let me finish up with this and I prom promise you, unlike Paul, where he says finally that I'm going to stop here in a few minutes. I told you the, the story of the trophies. I didn't finish it. So before my dad and stepmom left, my dad turns to me and my bride and says, you're not going to throw these trophies away, are you? And I'm paused and stopped because in my mind, the whole time they're there, I'm thinking, these trophies aren't going on the mantle. <laughs> not happening in this house. Where am I going to put them? I'm, and, and in my head all afternoon was, what are we going to do with these? I'm pretty sure these are just going to go in the dumpster. And my wife wittingly says, we'll take a picture. I learned a lot that day about a lot of things. And my dad, you can see his face, because really those trophies, it wasn't about the trophies, it was about the memories, right? It was about all these things that we had walked through together. And the memories of all those tournaments. And that night, late at night, I walked those boxes. I walked those boxes to my little apartment dumpster. And I would take one out, just being honest, I would take one out, and I would think about it, and I would throw it in the dumpster. And it took me a while. Go get another box. Put it in the dumpster. And I don't know that there's, up to that point in my life, or maybe since, there's been a clear object lesson for me. 
to appreciate all the memories that th those things represented, no doubt. But to realize that these earthly treasures that I put so much confidence in and stock in because of my performance and achievements, just a box of empty trophies. Trophies, plastic trophies, the collected dust. It was a great message to me to remember. As I was doing it, I, I began, the Lord brought to mind Matthew chapter 6. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. No, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Neither moth or rust can destroy. Thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What do you treasure? Do you find your confidence in the things that you can achieve? If you were to stand before God and he would say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Would you pull out your list or would you point to Jesus and say, it's him? I can know you, God, because of your son Jesus and what he's done on a cross for me. Do you know that truth? Do you know that message? Your takeaway was this. Trust in the unfading treasure of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning. I thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We're so undeserving. We often put our, our, our trust in the wrong things. Even good things we put our trust in and our hopes in. Lord, remind us this morning again to put our trust in Jesus for salvation, knowing that we can't earn our way to you, but also just our everyday lives. That we wouldn't put our trust in our own performance. We're just not good enough. But your son was. So Lord, Make us a people who trust in you. Make us a people like the tax collector that says, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. In Jesus' name.